Well, I invite you to take your Bibles with me and let's turn together to the book of Esther this evening. Let's take our Bibles together and turn again one final time for our study together into the book of Esther, Esther chapter 9. We'll turn together and look in God's Word, Esther chapter 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 18, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter, Esther chapter 9 and verse 18. I couldn't help while we were singing there, there is a fountain, um, the brothers in Kenya, when we attended last May a Sunday morning worship service, one of the songs that they sang was There Is a Fountain, and hearing them sing with their thick uh, Kenyan slash English accents, uh, there is uh, a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thou power to save, just uh, something about the lines that we sang tonight made me recall that memory, what a sweet memory it was. It's interesting to think about um, saints all over the globe singing some of the same songs, studying some of the same passages of Scripture. It's just a sweet thought. It's a reminder of the foretaste of what heaven will mean to all of us. Esther chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th and on the 15th of the month, they rested. And they made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, you think I'd have it by now, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them. The Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants, and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year, according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that those days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Verse 29, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim, and Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth 
to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting, so the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. Chapter 10. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Well, this is God's word. To celebrate deliverance, the end of warfare, to celebrate meaningful times is a most natural and usual thing. My mind uh, was called to remembrance the, the portrait of the young sailor at the end of World War II when it was announced that the war was over. How many of you guys have seen that iconic photograph of that young sailor just grabbing the closest female to him, a young nurse, and planting a, a big one on her? I don't have a problem with that because thankfully it wasn't one of my daughters. But what I'm trying to say is in all humor was that it was a moment of celebration. Everyone in Times Square stopped to celebrate. It was a time of exhilaration, a time of exaltation. It was a time that captured a national moment in the life of America, unlike uh, most photographs were able to do. Now, in the history of God's people, uh, God's people are called to remembrance throughout the Old Testament. We can think of the life of the children of Israel. There is the month of Passover, and I'll speak more about that a month of Passover, the celebration of Passover. But here in Esther chapter 9, we see the institution of the Feast of Purim. As a result of God's deliverance of the Jews every year at the leadership of Mordecai and the resolve of Esther, Every year, the Jews were to celebrate this deliverance. It's in the spring, a month before Passover. The Jews, and especially Jewish children, it is a very fun day for them. They often will dress up as the different characters of the story of the book of Esther, and they will recount and relive out these, this drama, if you will, this history of God's provision and deliverance for His people. Now, on the first message of the book of Esther, uh, Miss Karen came and brought up to me, Karen Ryan brought up to me this little rattle, and Karen, of all nights, I would forget to bring it uh, to, to the, the message. I remember thinking, on the last message, I'm going to bring it and just wake everybody up throughout the message. It's a little metal can with, I don't know, what, what's in it, Karen? Okay. Well, that's what it sounds like, and when you shake it, it's just the noisiest thing that you can imagine, but as the Jews celebrate uh, the Feast of Purim, they will recount the story of Esther, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, there is the stomping of feet. It's, the, it's a noisy affair. There is the, the clinging of rattles every time the name Haman's name is mentioned, and from what I read, it was that they will pause for dramatic of effect. Now Haman, and then everybody goes boo, and they, they, they rattle their feet, and they make as much noise as possible. And every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, there is yells and cheers of celebration. There is cheering, and I'm not sure, quite sure what that looks like or what that sounds like. 
on this day, when they take time to celebrate and remember, there are pastries that are eaten that are called, interestingly enough, Haman's ears and Haman's pockets. And there is a certain type of pastry that is eaten. And then the children will often take gifts of food uh, to the elderly. Is it a day that is spent in a party-like atmosphere and a rightful celebration? Well, as we look into this passage very quickly, it's a unique passage. It's kind of a summary passage that brings the book of Esther together. But number one, we see the intention of this festival, the festival of Purim, the feast of Purim. And so it explains to us how this non-Mosaic festival of Purim becomes a part of the Jewish calendar. So we'll just remind ourselves that the word pur is from the, it means the lot, or the Purim is per plural, the casting of the lot. If you remember, we saw that back in chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 9, verse 24 is mentioned again. But this is why the Jews call it the Feast of Purim. We've reminded ourselves that even though the day was determined by the casting of the lots, that God, we've mentioned it time and time again, God is the God of the lots, isn't He? Uh, Men may cast the lot, but God determines the very ordaining and the falling thereof. And so we see that on the 13th day of Adar, here verse 16 and 17 of chapter 9, this is the days that, 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 the, that the, the deliverance, the warfare ended. And then on the 14th day, verses 17 through 19, they rested. And on this day, they made it a day of feasting and gladness, holiday, holiday making, the celebration of food and gifts, the exchanging of presents. And so the intention of this festival and the Jews to this day still celebrate this in their customs and in their patterns. Secondly, the institution of this festival. We see that in all throughout the Old Testament among the people of God, that there is a proneness to forget. It's, it's common to forget. In fact, one commentator said, it is easier to forget than to remember. And so with this theme of forgetfulness, one of the things that God does not want His people to do is, is to forget. It is a consistent theme throughout Scripture to remember the work and provision of God in His people's lives. The Old Testament emphasizes the importance of this in different passages, the Passover of the unleavened bread, along as the setting apart from the firstborn, to remember how God redeemed His people and brought them out uh, of Egypt, how He saved His people Israel alive. We could walk through the Pentateuch and look at the different feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. We will not do that, but each one of those feasts was more than just the feast. It meant more than just the celebration of the tangible, physical things that they did and observed. It was all about remembering the work and the hand and the person of God in the life of His, of His people. As we look at the institution of the Feast of Purim or the Purim Festival, we see first of all in verses 20 through 22 that Mordecai begins to lead his people, particularly in the institution and the observance of this celebration. Notice he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of the kingdom. This was an organized affair. This was a, a mail-out of all mail-outs, just a reminder of how big the kingdom of King Ahasuerus was. But he instructed the Jews all over the kingdom to celebrate the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar Every year is the day in which the Jews received deliverance, got relief from their enemies. 
He wanted to lead God's people in remembering the work of God in their lives. He encouraged them to observe these days as, as days of festivity and gladness and the ways that they would observe it in exchanging of presents and joy. Later, as we'll see in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah called the Jewish people to celebrate another important occasion in their history when he instructed them to go and enjoy, notice the language here, choice food and sweet drinks, and to send some of those who have nothing, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Nehemiah went on to instruct the people of God. He said, This, this day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve. And then he goes on to give this famous phrase that you may have mounted in your house somewhere, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. What a, what a wonderful phrase. For the joy of the Lord is his people's strength. And Nehemiah similarly gave instruction to the Jewish people as Mordecai does here in our passage. Verses 27 and 28, we find, as we just read, that the Jews carefully adopted Mordecai's instructions, directions. They undertook to continue these practices. They vowed and committed themselves and their children and their children's children to celebrate these particular days. The two days of Purim would never be forgotten. In fact, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, the two days of official observance of Purim were accepted by the Jews, and by the time of the codification of the Jewish oral law in the Mishnah, that was around A.D. 200, they became legalized in the Jewish calendar. A third way we see this installed officially is in verses 29 through 31, where the writer of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, the writer of Esther here, notes for us that Esther uses her influence, her power, and her position to make this decree further a reality. Esther's decree further establishes this observance of Purim, and it was recorded in the writings officially. In fact, we see her status, her royal status, and her prominence. In fact, the, whole, the writer here brings us into chapter 10 by also showing us Mordecai's exalted preeminence and prominence and how he uses this with he and Esther to the leadership of God's people. In fact, when you look in chapter 10, verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew was, notice the language, second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews. That has echoes of Joseph, if you remember, where uh, uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph, you shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. By the way, we've, we've pointed this out before. It's just the trend of God elevating and putting his people in key prominent positions, Daniel, Nehemiah, and others, for his purposes for such a time as this. So we see Mordecai exalted and elevated and using his position wisely, using the power that's been entrusted to him for the furtherance and the good of the nation of Israel. In fact, you could say it like this, Mordecai is an example of what we read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, that says, as we have opportunity, Paul writes, he says, let us do good to all people, but especially to those of the family of faith, the family of God. My father used to say to me often, I was just thinking in my office this afternoon, do all the good you can to everyone you can in all the ways you can 
every, every chance you can. I think it's about as comprehensive as, as you can get it. I try to scribble it down, remembering how he used to say it. He would often say it off the cuff, and so it's just in my, in my mind. But that's exactly what we see Mordecai doing. Stewarding his leadership well, leading God's people, and directing them to the Lord. Well, I want to give us some concluding thoughts. We see the installation, the institution of the Feast of Purim. We see the exaltation of Mordecai, but there's a theme here in the scriptures and also this passage, and it is the theme of remembrance. In fact, the, four, the festival of Purim has four key features that I think we can make application to as we prepare our hearts for what we call the remembrance of the Lord's table. When the Lord gives his instructions as the church, that when we do this, when we come together to do this in remembrance of him. I think there's some parallels that we could make that does not do force on the text of making some parallels between the feast of Purim to the Jewish people and what the Lord's Supper and what the Lord's Day do for us as God's people in a regular basis. And we see that reflected in rest, feasting, gladness, and the exercise of generosity. Again, these four little succinct headings, rest, feasting, gladness, and our giving ourselves an exercise of generosity. First off, rest there. As we consider what the Jewish people were doing as the installation of the Feast of Purim, it was a call for rest and remembrance. As a new covenant, family of faith, as a new covenant people of God, we are called to rest in the finished work of Christ. In fact, as we observe the Lord's table, and as we practice the pattern of taking Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day, it provides for God's people a particular kind of rest. In effect, not only do we see Jesus' call to the nations to come and to rest in Him, God's people model this by regularly, weekly, publicly, visibly coming and resting uh, in Christ in an in assembly way, in a corporate way. In fact, we must take time to receive and remember and to reflect upon the finished work of Christ. And that is part of one of the key things we do every day, every Lord's Day, as we gather together. And as we gather together, we meditate and we think upon what Christ has done for us. So rest, just another word on, on rest. Just like we saw forgiveness this morning is so difficult to do, resting is very difficult to do. We live in a society that goes, goes, goes. We all are busy. In fact, if you were to ask anyone today, how are you doing? How is your week? Probably nine out of ten of the answers were busy, full. Life is happening, and we get that. We understand that. It's, it's the way it is. All the more for the importance of the Lord's Day and the rest that we receive in resting in Christ with His people. The second heading as we make a parallel between the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day is one of feasting. Both the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day are occasions for fellowship, aren't they? A special kind of feasting. There's the feasting on the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Both the Lord's Supper and the Lord's Day are occasions for this wonderful fellowship both around the spiritual bread of the Word of God, but also around the physical 
bread of the word of God. The early Christians in Acts chapter 1 through 3, it is described for us, the early church gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. There's a beautiful simplicity to that, isn't it? That's what we're doing here today. It's just a reminder to us that what we do here is not complicated and it's not cluttered. There's a simplicity to our worship. There's the actual breaking of bread in homes. Oftentimes we reserve Sunday as a time for hospitality, to take time to connect. As, as a church, we've done this in recent months and years, to take the last Sunday of the month for intentional hospitality. It's not to say that's the only time that we do it, but the day lends itself to it. And so we try to practice that here at Grace, to feast upon the fellowship that we have in Christ and to recognize our common relationship in Him to one another. We also do that actually by observing the Lord's table regularly, by obeying our Lord's command, coming before His table on His day. You don't have to observe the Lord's table exclusively on the Lord's day. Don't hear that in what I'm saying, but that is the most common practice of the church, to do that. And friends, I'll just tell you, if you don't guard these things, they will dissipate. We will forget why we do them. They will become mundane. I was, I was meeting with a pastor, a young pastor recently, who the Lord just brought our paths together here in this county, in this area. And uh, he began to look up our messages and our sermons online and just began to seek counsel and just to say, y'all do things a certain way. Y'all do things intentionally. I've seen that. I've seen that from afar. And, and he's, he wants to do the same thing in healthy rhythms. He says, I see it in Scripture. I just don't know how to get it started. I don't know how to do it. And one of the first things he asked questions on is the Lord's table. And so we walked through it. And I said, friend, you've got complete liberty, but I'll just say this, do it often. Some people practice it weekly. Some people practice it biweekly. Some people practice it monthly. Some people practice it quarterly. Some people practice it yearly. Some people practice it never. And I said, all we see in Scripture is the command and the call to practice it often. And so every church must decide for themselves what that is and how often that is. But uh, Grace has chosen to do it monthly, to do it in a monthly pattern. Monthly so that it is not uh, too far apart and also monthly so that it is meaningful and helpful. We could always make changes to that in the future. I'm not trying to get off track there. But uh, you will often find, not just locally but just in the church today the lord's table is an afterthought it's something that is just forgotten about well church may we not miss the blessings of this observance as we come and remember our lord's sacrifice and commit these things to him well then gladness uh, the feast of purim was a was a time of gladness and as the jewish people remembered god's deliverance and i'll just remind us that the lord's day and the lord's supper are moments of gladness for us. At least they should be. As we fellowship together, as we break the bread together, we are rehearsing and celebrating. We do that in the singing of our songs. We rehearse the gospel in the songs that we choose. Almost every song that we sing here at Grace is pointing to the finished and person and work of Christ. It's pointing to what Christ achieved for us. It reminds us of our hope in Him. It walks through the gospel message and points us to gladness of our souls being redeemed by the person and work of Christ. It is a wonderful thing to lift up our hearts and our praises, an expression of praise to the Lord. Hearts that are full 
of gladness. In fact, we often pray that way. Lord, our hearts are full of gladness. Lord, our hearts love you. We are grateful for what you have done for us. Then the last heading that I want to make just a connection to is one of generosity. One of generosity. We saw in the institution of the Feast of Purim that Mordecai gave specific instruction for radical generosity to assist those who may not be able to naturally, but by their own means, participate in the call to feast. And so for those that had the means to assist in that and to come alongside and to be generous in their expressions of this. And friends, that's what the Lord's Day is for us as well. God's people have often gathered together from the very institution of the church, as we've seen in the pattern of Scripture. On the Lord's Day, we bring in worship our gifts before the Lord, our monetary gifts. And we echo David's call that, it, that uh, our love and service for the Lord shouldn't cost us nothing. And so we come with a sense of sacrifice. But there's a beautiful aspect of making a connection on the Lord's Day and also the service of the Lord's table is that the Lord's church has often historically, not out of a mandate or a law, but when we observe the Lord's table, it's been a pattern among God's people to take up a special offering, an offering of love, a benevolence offering, a fellowship offering, some have called it, for the least, the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow, the, the very basic everyday uh, uh, needs that are, the church is called upon to try to answer off the cuff. Oftentimes people will walk in the door here at Grace, and ask for assistance with gas or some food or that type of thing. Well, it's long been a tradition among God's people to practice not only offerings and generosity, but connected to the remembrance of the Lord's atoning work for us to take up a special offering. And we do that here at Grace. We call it our benevolence offering, and we will be this evening. As you leave, if the Lord has led you to participate in that, there's a box in the Welcome Center that you can place that offering in. And it's a beautiful reminder to us as we consider all that we have in Christ. The danger of forgetfulness. Well, church, I've taken some time to try to highlight this. May we as a church remember why it is we do what we do. Not just rote things, not just habitual things, not just the mundane, but may we do these things with joy, remembering why we do them. Before we conclude the book of Esther, I want to give some closing applications that remind us. Some of these will be repeated, just a couple here off the cuff. But as we've looked at the book of Esther from beginning to end, by no means exhaustively, it's been a challenge for me. It's been a good mix-up, a good change-up to teach through the book of Esther. It's so different than Matthew. It's so different than the epistles being a historical narrative passage and, and how to break that down and, and to bring it to God's people. But I think one thing we've all found is that the book of Esther is different than we thought it was maybe on the front end. If you've studied through the book of Esther, maybe not for you, but for those of us who've never studied through it or taught through it or heard it verse by verse, it was just different than maybe what was always emphasized to us growing up in the Sunday school years of life. But one thing that hopefully we can take away is this. It's a reminder to us that God accomplishes, notice here, his sovereign purposes, or more specifically, his perfect purposes and plan through imperfect people. That's one of the key things we've seen through the book of Esther. God accomplishes his perfect plan through his imperfect people. At the beginning of this book, when we were introduced to Esther and Mordecai, we were introduced to not only their persons, but their compromises. Their initial lack of 
public identification with God's people. But the good news is, like most of us, that they did not stay where we first found them. As the book progressed, we found that more and more they identified with God's people, they stood up, they, they began to identify with God's purposes, His plan, and began to realize that God had placed them right where they were for a purpose and for an hour. And so they had this sense of entrustment, understanding that they were living not only for themselves, but for the purposes of their people and for the will of God. Friends, I don't know about you, I'm not going to try to overly apply this point, but everyone in this room and every person here tonight got started off one way, even in your new conversion and your early days in walking with Christ. And there's times we just get off the path, don't we? There's phrases, there's ways that we call it. We call it being backslidden, we call it getting in a rut, getting in a ditch, out of season, out of, out of fellowship with the Lord, or not living for Him as we ought. Friends, that's all of us. Uh, on any given week, any given month. But what an encouragement for us, as we saw a few weeks ago in Paul's admonition to the church at Philippi, to remember that we are looking forward and we are looking ahead and not behind. Satan would love to get you to focus exclusively on your imperfect past. That's what Satan delights for you to do. And when you do that, it's like driving down the road, looking in the rearview mirror. You just can't do it, can you? And every time you begin to focus inordinately upon your imperfect past, your sinful past, or the mistakes that you've made, it's like trying to drive a car, but looking in the rearview mirror, you're just going to crash or stall out or nothing good really is going to happen. It's a reminder to us that God has chapters for His children, and when we come to Him, as we grow in Him, as we progress in Him, mortifying sin, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, and looking ahead to all that he has for us, that the Lord has future chapters of purpose and ministry for us as his people. There is not one Old Testament saint, or New Testament saint, you could say for that matter, that did not have major problems. And yet, for many of them, we see both the before, the during, and the after of God's using them and his mercy extended to them. It's just an encouragement for us to remember that God accomplishes his perfect will through imperfect people. Thank God for the finished work of Christ. Amen? Amen. Another quick takeaway is just simply is of this. We've said this in different ways, but our sovereign God is in charge of our times. He's in charge of our when. He's in charge of our where. He's in charge of our what. He's in charge of all of it. Summarized in Esther's or Mordecai's statement to Esther, who knows if God has raised us up for such a time as this? Well, I'll just tell you as the church is that he that he has. He's raised us up for such a time as this. And if you listen to the news alone, as we check the headlines, as we read the news or hear the news, there will be increasing alarmism hysteria about what all will take place in 2024. What is on the horizon? Listen, only the Lord knows ultimately what is on the horizon. But I'll just say this, lest you get alarmed out of your mind, don't forget this. God wants you to be alive right now. And God wants me to be alive for such a time as this. This is not a trial run. We don't get two or three chances at life. We get one life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
May the Lord help us with a, a worldview of resolve that understands that we don't get mired in the mediocrity or just get in the miry clay of getting frustrated and starting to echo the alarmism of those around us who do not know Christ. May the Lord give His people a peace and assurance and a confidence that I'm here for such a time as this. Lord, what do you have for me tomorrow morning as we're getting up on Monday and heading into work? Lord, you're in charge of my times. As the psalmist said, my times are in your hands. What is it that you have me to do today? As I go to my job or whatever it is the Lord has already put on our calendars, that gives a sense of purpose to our lives and a, a certain confidence in our step. A final focus that I want to give to you is this. As the New Covenant people, the gospel fuels our how and our why. Unlike Esther in the sense of walking through the Old Testament narrative passage, all that God expects from us as the bride of Christ, as His church, as His people, He has provided for us in Christ Jesus. He has created us for this. He has empowered us for this. He has saved us for this. He has prepared us for this. And a verse reference I've, I've mentioned a lot is Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10, the good works that he has before ordained for us to fulfill. Well, those good works would not be possible apart from his finished work upon the cross. So the gospel fuels everything that the Lord has planned and designed for us. Another way of saying that is the finished work of Christ equips us for everything that the Lord wants us to do. Well, as we prepare for the Lord's table, we're going to do things just a little bit differently tonight. We are also observing, as you see, the Lord's table has grown a little bit. If you're visiting with us and you've seen us observe the Lord's table, it's usually on the smaller table over here. But whenever we observe believers' baptism, we do it on top of the, the baptistry here. So we will observe the Lord's table first, and then we will uh, take time uh, maybe to sing a song. Charity, if you'll have a song ready, depending on how long we need it, we may not need it. Um, to then observe believers' baptism. Just before I pray, if you're visiting with us, if you're not a member here at Grace, just some gentle guidance here. Two things that we ask of you uh, to, to, before you partake of breaking of bread in the Lord's table with us is, number one, that you be born again, that you have made a profession of faith in Christ, that you bear the fruit of the Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is evidence that in your life and that is between ultimate you and the Lord. But we just want to give you a, um, a cause for a warning. Do not partake of the Lord's table in a flippant and in an unworthy manner, chiefly uh, being unregenerate. This is not for you. You are our guest if you're here this evening. But if you know that you are not in Christ, do not take this table, uh, partake of this table with us. We ask that you abstain and simply stay there and sit there. And at the table, if it comes across your way, just simply abstain from that. And that's what we ask you to do. The other qualifier is this, that you not be under church discipline from another church. Uh, if you have been under church discipline and you've left that assembly or left that church and you've not been reconciled or you've not made those things right, do not come here and partake of the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That would be an un unworthy manner. All of us are submitting to the finished work of Christ, aren't we? There's a sense that none of us feel worthy. But in the quietness of these moments, may we rest in His finished work and remember His sacrifice for us and confess anything that the Lord may bring to our mind that may be a hindrance to our peace in doing just that. Let me pray for us. Our gracious Father in heaven, we do come, and just in the quietness of this moment, we thank You for Your Word. 
your grace. And Father, we thank you for the table of the Lord. And as we reflect upon your finished work, may be, this be a strengthening time for your people. May this be a special time for us as we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Father, I pray that you would give a special encouragement to the people of the Lord who've been here today. And I just pray that they would go into their week this week with a sense of peace and strength and resolve. Once you'd help them to shine in unique ways and remind them of why you have placed them exactly where they are in their corner of, of your world, of your kingdom. Maybe it's at their job. Maybe it's at a, a hobby or a place where they convene with people regularly. And may they be reminded of why it is that, that you have led their paths in that way as they are faithful to you, faithful to Christ, faithful to your word. We'll trust in all these things. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.